Morning. Is this coming in good? Good, okay. Thought you guys said it snows here. <laughs> I, uh, pride comes before the fall. I've been asked a few times if we needed help shoveling. I'm like, no, nah, I got this. And, and, and really, I got this meant that my landlord was out there with a the snowblower. Um, and then I was sitting there just drinking coffee, just watching him like, oh, man. Yeah, going smoothly. Um, what I didn't know, pride comes before the fall, literally, is even after you shovel off your deck, if you have a tin roof or metal roof, that snow comes down, and you have to shovel it again. <laughs> but only in the center, because then, an hour later, on the left, it's going to fall down too, and then you have to do it again. <sighs> so, hopefully the forecast is true, and it will be sunny this week. Uh, that's enough snow for a week. Anyway, uh, with that said, good morning. And uh, we, oh wait, we are in Philippi. And uh, the sermon will be in Philippians 1, 24 through 30, entitled... The commonality of our Christian faith. The title kind of just says what the sermon is going to be about. I try to do that each week. Let me, let me open us in prayer. Actually, let me read the passage and then I'll open us in prayer. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that, because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw and I had, and now here that I have. But Heavenly Father, God, uh, as the song talked about coming and drinking from living water, Lord, we, we pray uh, as we would preach, uh, as I would preach your word, Lord, and be attentive, our hearts and our minds and our strength, God, that we would drink from the deep wells of Jesus Christ, Lord, in your word, and be satisfied, God. Lord, I pray uh, that you would do this in your spirit, Lord, and bring glory to yourself through the proclamation of the word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In, in summary, this passage here teaches us that what was common to Paul and the Philippians will be common to us as well. Well, I don't know if it directly says that, but that's the application today. What was common to Paul and the Philippians will be common to us. They, the, the commonalities they share in are, are things such as their faith and persecution, suffering and affliction, their status 
and so on. And no matter what their or our differences may be, we were created and redeemed to live in harmony with one another. And in order to have that harmonization, Paul's going to tell them, and we must heed to this, we must conduct ourselves in a worthy manner to which we've been called according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So point one. One thing we share, have in common, is our common comfort. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. If you remember, Paul said to, uh, to live as Christ, to die as gain. But to remain in the flesh, to remain on earth, is more necessary for the Philippians' sake. Paul was convinced that he would be released from prison and be able to return to the Philippians in order to do what? In order to help them progress in their faith. That's what it says in this passage. I know I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress in joining the faith. Whether he be in person or not, that was his goal, and that's what he was convinced of. And due to their history, Paul and the Philippians, they certainly would have welcomed him with open arms. Because from start to finish, Paul was their model of Christ-like living. It's, it's a wonderful witness to us as fellow believers when a Christian we know goes through some of the hardest times that we can possibly imagine, and yet they continue to use their suffering as an opportunity rather than an excuse. That's a good witness. That's exactly what the Philippians got to see from Paul. And if you remember back in Acts 16, Paul was the evangelist who brought the gospel to Philippi. <laughs> and then quickly they witnessed a first-hand glimpse that his faith was real because soon in Philippi he was arrested for preaching Christ. They got to see a man who fearlessly preached salvation in Christ alone, and was confident to the point of imprisonment or even the likelihood of death itself. Paul's faith was real, and they found that there, here in this letter, that they know that Paul has been arrested again, not in Philippi, most likely in Rome. Again, that's a debate. Yet nothing has changed in his witness to the Philippians, as we see here in chapter 1. He still views his afflictions as opportunities and not excuses. We, we, we covered this a few weeks ago. He says, yeah, yes, I'm in jail, but now the whole imperial guard knows why I've been arrested, and it's because of my faith in Christ Jesus. He said, yes, they tried to silence me, but now we have more brothers preaching the word more boldly and fearlessly. Yes, men seek to do me harm, but so what? Christ crucified is still being proclaimed. And he takes the opportunity of his imprisonment to glorify God and not to make it as an excuse to, not to complain or to say, woe is me. Therefore, the Philippians, they, they had come to, to, to trust Paul 
and and because of of his genuine genuine interest in them they had a deep rooted love for paul because they knew that he took a genuine interest in their faith he was willing to go to prison in order so they might grow in their faith and progress in knowing christ which is reaffirmed beginning in today's passage by his desire to come back and help them mature and specifically to help them minister in their current situation as they share the same struggles and who would be a better man to help shepherd them than a man that they had known had been faithful for years God used Paul's faithfulness to teach them, but he also provided Paul as an instrument to help comfort them in their distress. For whatever distress they were now facing, Paul had also been engaged in the same type of conflict. We see that in verse 30. A God, our God of comfort, our Father of mercies is a God who uses our common afflictions to help comfort one another. Look at 2 Corinthians 1. The Apostle Paul writes to Corinth and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Which means our merciful Father, who, as Paul says, is the God of comfort, uses our previous suffering and afflictions in order to help others when they themselves are currently being afflicted. And therefore, we, we are able, once we suffer and, and go through that trial and come out through the grace of God, we're able to be a living testimony to the mercy and goodness of God. That's so why one of the greatest ways that we can bear one another's burdens is by spending time with those who are suffering as we previously had. Like it or not, the Bible says we need each other. Right? God made it that way. You know what? In Hebrews, it says we're not to forsake assembling, and 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 assembling with one another on the Lord's day. Right? It was pointed out in in a sermon I listened to that something else it says is that encourage one another. That it's an encouragement to one another when we assemble together and i saw that come true today his grace came back after being in africa and my daughters were absolutely thrilled to see her the joy on their face just seeing someone that they knew someone that they meet with on sunday morning and not only was it an encouragement to them it was an encouragement to me we need each other we're meant to be in community together I remember uh, when we first, the first weekend, my family and I came here uh, when we were candidating. We, we asked the elders, my, my wife and I asked the elders, what is Cornerstone known for in the community? Like, are we the hip church? Are we the fuddy-duddies? You know, the Bible thumpers? 
personally, I was hoping that they would say, uh, we are known as the theological nerds of Leavenworth. <laughs> that would look really cool on a shirt. However, one of them actually quoted uh, one of you. And I don't remember who they quoted, but, but, but what you said was, Cornerstone is a great place to get cancer in. Loved ones, that, that is a perfect replica of God comforting His people with the love of His people. We all have suffering. We all suffer. We all have suffering in common. But that shared experience is a source of healing that the Lord uses to comfort us. Our God knows how to provide relief. That's what the word, that's what Paul's saying to Corinth. And that's what he would say to us and what he says to Philippians. Our God is a God of comfort and knows how to provide relief. And one of the ways that he provides relief is by us sharing our experience with one another and saying God is faithful, God is merciful, and God is good. One of the greatest comforts in, in life is being ministered to by someone who has gone through the anguish, the specific anguish that we are currently experiencing. And there's, there's, there's something that the Lord has hardwired into humanity that is able to provide this unique intimacy that can only come from shared trauma experiences or identical circumstances of sharing trauma, the same type of suffering. That intimacy, that unique intimacy can be seen very clearly from those who have been in war. If you've ever watched the Band of Brothers, and that, that is not G-rated, so just know if you do, it's adult-rated. But you'll remember that the stories that they make, those stories are taken from actual soldiers who, who fought in World War II. And, and, and the stories are taken from men who survived World War II. And, and the intimate bond that those men have together could have only been formed by the experience that they shared. And that, that's a bond. That's an intimate, unique bond that only those men have. And, and, and as Christians, we can have a unique, intimate bond that only believers can have because only believers truly trust that God comforts us in our afflictions. Therefore, it's good to remind ourselves that, that God provides comfort to those who share in common suffering or common afflictions. Verses 28 through 30. Not being frightened in any way by your opponents, this is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Whatever the exact opposition is that the Philippians were currently facing is unknown. Paul says, do not be frightened by your opponents. It's a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. 
And in verse 30, he does say, you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw and now hear that I have. While we aren't sure of the exact struggles in Philippi, here's a list of some of the types of struggles Paul went through during his lifetime, during his ministry. Just an excerpt from 2 Corinthians 11. The apostle wrote to them and said, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in dangers from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and told and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the pressure of my concern for all the churches. That excerpt makes sense then why he would write to uh, Timothy and say, uh, paraphrase, you better be certain that the servant of Christ will suffer. And while it would have been easy to, to sulk in his misery and cry, woe is me. Here in verse 29, he tells the Philippians that, that, that no, 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 don't, don't, don't cry for me. It's not woe is me. Because it's actually God who has appointed my suffering. Verse 29. It has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. We could spend a lot of time focusing on what it means for God granting us belief or appointing us to belief, but the emphasis here seems to rest on God appointing our suffering. Either way, they're both for Christ's sake. So therefore, his point to Philippians is, look, yeah, God appointed you to believe in Christ. And you believe and you rejoice. But God also appointed you to suffer for Christ's sake. So rejoice. I realize it may not sound very appealing to rejoice in a God who, who appoints our suffering. I can personally, and I'm sure some of you can personally testify, uh, that embracing that truth, that God is in control, that God does appoint our suffering for Christ's sake, that, that I can testify that God has brought peace to my own heart during the greatest anxiety I've ever faced in ministry. And, and as I shared my, my distress and my anxiety and my anguish with a dear friend in Canada who I went to seminary with, and he's also a pastor up there, he actually pointed me to this verse, which I think he was preaching through Philippians at the time, and reminded me, Timothy, not only has God appointed you to believe, but his word says he's also appointed you to suffer. Somehow that little reminder brought an instant and unexplainable peace to my heart that still rests there today. It, it, it may seem like a contradiction that, that somehow the God who appoints our affliction 
is also able to comfort us in our affliction simply by revealing to us that the affliction was appointed by him. So with that, with that reality, at the forefront in the Philippians' mind now, it should come at no surprise that they too were facing the same afflictions as Paul once had, or <laughs> currently facing. Now, Paul preached Christ crucified, and strong opposition and affliction was a result of his ministry. And, and in this momentary affliction, in this momentary anguish, the Philippians were now getting a taste of what the Apostle Paul had experienced for years. And for whatever their struggles were, the one that they had in common with Paul was due to their faith. Their faith was his faith. And his faith and their faith was solely based in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you preach that message to a hostile world and say there is no name on earth or under heaven by which a sinner must call upon in order to be saved except Christ Jesus, we can be certain that there are going to be people in the world that will oppose that message, that reject that message. It's a good reminder. <laughs> this, this passage is a good reminder for any church that, desire, that desires to have the gospel be the centerpiece, that desires to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to be the centerpiece and foundation of their assembly and unity, of their faith and practice. They must be fully aware that they will face opposition. Yet when we do, may we be reminded of Jesus' words to his disciples in John 15. And Jesus said, look, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus told us it was coming. And Paul's reminded the Philippians, hey, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The world hates us. And Jacob read it uh, from John 3 this morning with the Lord's Supper. They don't want to leave the darkness. They hate the light because they love the darkness. And Christ is able to expose our hearts and our minds. He is able to somehow, through the Word of God and the Spirit, able to call us specifically out in our sins so that we know we desperately need Him in order to be forgiven. And then He's also able to convince us that He is a Savior who forgives sins in every single one of them. That sounds like a good message. Sinners in need of the grace of God. But as Jesus told his disciples and Paul and Philippians experienced, 
the world still rejects that message because they reject Jesus. Now we also have a common citizenship. If we scroll back or scroll up to verse 27, he tells them how to respond to their struggle. Paul tells them how to respond to their struggle. Just one thing as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Some of your translations may say uh, uh, just one thing or only. It may not say citizens of heaven. That, that Greek verb implies to fulfill your duties uh, or is defined as fulfilling one's duties and obligations as a citizen. As a citizen. And when we get to Philippians 3.20, when he says you are citizens, that is the noun for the same word used. So I translate it as citizens of heaven. Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now Paul reminds them of their heavenly status. But he does it in order to exhort them to fulfill their obligations as citizens of God's kingdom. You don't belong here. This is not your world. I, I chose you out of the world. I brought you out of the world. This here is temporary. And, and, and now Paul's going to say, now who you are should warrant how you act and conduct your lives. You're citizens of heaven. You who were once a foreigner have been given a legal status for permanent residency in heaven. And that status was made possible through the purchase of Christ because he bought your citizenship with his blood. It came at a price. And so therefore, when you, when we stand before the gates of heaven and they ask us, say, what are you doing here? Our only response, our only reply should be, I've been given citizenship by the man on the cross. And he told me he's prepared many rooms. And one of those rooms are mine. Because of that, Paul says, live your life in a worthy manner of that new citizenship. And then proceeds to tell them how. Look at verse 27. Stand firm in one spirit, in one accord. Contend, contend together for the faith of the gospel. Be one. Be united. But make sure your unity is rooted in the gospel. In other words, our primary, the Philippians' primary, Paul's primary, our primary identity should be found in Christ alone, be found in our Christianity. Which means our Christian identity as Christians, that should trump all other identities and citizenships. When it's properly applied, right? Our church can fly all the way over to Africa and have more in common with them over there who are Christians than with those outside of the community of faith here in our hometown of Leavenworth. Why? Because our citizenship is in heaven. And our partnership in the gospel reaches further than the American borders. 
And their citizenship in Africa is in heaven. And their partnership in the gospel reaches further than their African borders. It is a sweet and beautiful thing to see the nations unite in the cause of Christ. But the context of the passage says it's a necessary requirement for every local church to do the same. We're a local church. Loved ones, trials, tribulations, opposition, persecution, you name it, it's coming. But when it does, our primary obligation is to unite and remain united with one another in the gospel. Because according to the word of God, that is how we live a life worthy of our calling. And I know many, if not all of us, have seen churches across our American nation put more emphasis over our citizenship as Americans than our obligation as heavenly citizens. What's it done? It's caused anger, frustration, bitterness, ungraciousness that has caused division throughout the entire church. And don't, don't misunderstand this point because I believe as Christians that we should care about and we should be good stewards of our American citizenship or whatever citizenship we have. But if we just reflect on the last 10 years in America and ask ourselves this, has the way the church been conducting itself over these last 10 years, are we a people who resemble that we were more concerned about our heavenly status or our earthly one? And so you know, this passage is just as challenging for me as I preach it. I'm preaching to the choir. I'm singing with the choir. It's convicting and challenging in my own heart. But loved ones, we cannot let together for the gospel become a cliche. Because the word of God says it is the bond which unites us. No matter what nation we live in, no matter what race we are or gender we are, no matter what age, ethnicity, if we've been called by Christ, we all have the same citizenship. And therefore, we must conduct our lives as so. Now, with all that said, we can just conclude with our common cause, which is to proclaim the work of Christ Jesus to every nation, and that begins where we live. Because the message regarding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only way the prideful need will bow, and it's the only way the sinner's tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And for that reason, we must remain unified to proclaim. For God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him may not perish, but have everlasting life. Let us pray. My Heavenly Father, God, it is a difficult thing to try to 
to try to work through or or to try to balance lord living in a nation but being faithful to the citizenship in heaven that we have been called to according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, it is difficult to humble ourselves and, and, and not just in our citizenship, but in all areas and seek first to prioritize the gospel, Lord, and to love one another and to be gracious to one another. God, we need help and strengthen to do that. May Your Word not condemn us, but convict us and may it challenge us and transform us, God, to, to live our lives worthy to what we've been called to do, Lord. And, 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 and may being unified in Christ Jesus and in his death, resurrection, and resurrection, Lord. May that radiate and be attractive to those. May, may this world see unity in the church, Lord, that is founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then ask themselves, what type of power resides in them? And then may we tell them, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.